You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. How many of you love Chick-fil-A? All right. um, I, um, one of the first jobs I had was at Chick-fil-A, and uh, uh, when I had worked there for a little bit, I had a job in the back uh, prepping food. And I don't mean prepping food like frying food, I mean like doing the, the early prep of cutting chicken fillets and breading them. And uh, we had a, a large cooler that uh, was the refrigerator, and uh, it had a surface on top that was made uh, for doing that prep work. And so you'd cut the fillets and make sure they weighed the right amount, and then you'd dip them in the breading and then uh, put them uh, with the rest so they could be fried. And uh, after I had done that, I had to clean that, that surface because it was covered with breading. As you put the breading on, it gets everywhere. And so I'm cleaning that surface, and I put water on, and I'm washing it off. And as I'm doing that, I feel this jolt of electricity go through me. What had happened, I'd put so much water on it, the water had rolled over the back of that, that top, and it had run down, and it hit the cord, the power cord of that freezer in the back that was frayed. And that current ran through that water into my body. And before that moment, I knew about electricity. Like, I knew that electricity was causing the lights to be on, that it was causing the refrigerator to run. Um, but in that moment where it coursed through me, I knew electricity was real. I experienced it. I could feel it. And it may be that you're here today and you know some things to be true. Or you have some things that you understand or that you believe. What I want you to see in this passage of Scripture is that the disciples came to not only understand something or to know something to be true, but it coursed through their bodies. That they, they came to know it personally and it changed them. Now, thankfully for me, that, that water that ran down, it, was just, it just created that arc momentarily. So that moment of shock and being paralyzed only lasted a second, and when the water coursed off, it broke that circuit. But the power of Christ and the power of God wishes to course through our lives in a way that doesn't paralyze us but for the first time in our lives empowers us, and we are able to move and live and function and think and feel in a way that we've never felt before. And that happens here for the disciples, but it happens in the context of Jesus establishing the church. And all of Luke 9 is just fantastic, and I wish that I could, I could read all of it to you today, but it's not practical for us to read all 60 verses of this chapter in our time together. So I encourage you that when you get home, you get out a Bible and you read all of Luke 9 for yourself and see all of these things that Luke is putting together in these paragraphs that teach us about the power of God and the transformation of his grace and the structure of the church. You say, I don't have a Bible, Pastor Daniel. There are Bibles in the pew. And if you don't have a Bible, I want you to take one of those Bibles home with you. You have my permission to steal that Bible. All right, so take that home uh, and read that later. Here in Luke 9, we have the beginning of the disciples kind of taking ownership of the ministry that Jesus would give them, and that's what we see at the very beginning of the chapter in verse 1. So let's read those verses together. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. 
And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves, nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever house you enter, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you when you go out of a city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. These 12 disciples, they go into the towns and the villages, some of which Jesus would come to later, so they were preparing the way for Jesus to get there. Some of them Jesus would not get to, and so they were carrying the message beyond the journey that Jesus could take. While, while Jesus was with us, you see, he was God in the flesh, and because he took on flesh, he submitted himself to the limitations that you and I have. He experienced weariness, he got hungry, he was thirsty. And just as he experienced being exhausted and having thirst and hunger, he also was limited by being in one place at a time. And so when he sends the 12 disciples out in six pairs, six groups of two, he's able to multiply the impact and places where people can come to know the message. And here's what you need to, to know, all right? This was Jesus' heartbeat, was to establish the church in this group of people, so that when he left, it could continue to carry the message beyond, to the regions beyond, and to the nations beyond, and the ages to come. Uh, sometimes people will reach out to me, and they'll, they'll say, hey, Pastor, I just really need to talk to somebody, I really need, to help. I need help, and so I'll meet with them, I'll talk with them on a, on a Tuesday morning or a Thursday evening. And we'll talk, and I'll help them walk through whatever catastrophe they're currently facing, and I'll say, hey, listen, I, I would really love it for you to come to church on Sunday. I think that would really help you through this. And sometimes they'll say something like, ah, you know, church is not just really not my thing. And, and they don't know it, but when they do that, they disrespect me. Because I have given my heart to the church and to serve the church here in this community. And for them to say, like, hey, Pastor Daniel, I like you, and I want your counsel and your wisdom, but I'm not really a fan of the church, would be the same thing as saying to me, like, hey, Pastor Daniel, I think you're cool, but I don't like your wife. You say that, we're going to have problems, because she's got my heart. I love her. And the same is true for Jesus. Jesus loved the church, and he worked his entire time here among us to establish the church. And so for people to say, like, I love Jesus, but I'm just not really a fan of organized religion, or I love Jesus, but I just don't really have any time or use for the church, you, you don't understand what you're saying. Because you can't appreciate who Jesus is, you can't appreciate what he's about without appreciating the church, because he gave his heart to it. Luke is giving us the biography of Jesus' life in his Gospel, Luke. And then in Acts, the same writer, Luke, continues to write about the acts of the church. And he, he does this seamlessly because Jesus was giving his heart for the church, and then the church was giving its heart for Jesus. And for Luke to cover the life of Jesus without talking about the church would be like doing a documentary on Michael Jordan and never mentioning basketball. Or writing a biography of George Washington and never mentioning the Revolutionary War. It was central to who Jesus was. Church was his heartbeat. It was his passion. So you can't really know Jesus without appreciating the church. I think people who, who feel that way, who feel like, yeah, Pastor, I want some help from you, but uh, the church isn't really my thing. I, I think that there's two things they don't understand. I don't think they understand who I really am, what I'm about. And two, I don't think they really understand what the church is about. You see, the church is not about having a big group of people here. 
And when I invite someone to church, I'm not inviting them to add their name to a list or to a role. That's not what I want. That's not what we're trying to do. Okay? We are building the church our friends and neighbors will join and that our children will lead. Because as that church is built, Jesus, Jesus was establishing his church with his disciples and the group that was larger beyond that. As we build that, we're not just adding names to the list. When we add somebody else to the church, we add someone else who can make a difference in this community and in this town and in the lives of the people around us. You say, hey, Pastor Daniel, listen, I, I got a deal for you. You can have a church of a thousand people tomorrow, but all they're going to do is come and hear you preach. Hard pass. Because that's not what this is. This is not just a crowd of people to hear me preach or to hear Derek sing. This is a group of people to transform this community, to make a difference. And Jesus didn't gather these 12 disciples to be his cronies and his buddies to just listen to him talk. He gathered to train them up so that he could send them out like he just did in this passage. And so when Jesus sends the 12 disciples out, and then later in chapter 10, which we'll look at in two weeks, he sends 70 out. When he sends them out, the purpose of the church is seen. that The purpose of the church then and now is helping people. That's the purpose. And the purpose of growing the church is helping more people. So instead of a church of a thousand people who just sit and come and listen to me talk, I'd rather have a church of a hundred people who take the message out into this community. That's what we're building here. We're not building a gathering of listeners. We're, we're building an organism, an organization, an army of people to go out and make a difference in the lives of the broken people all around us. And I guarantee you that a a church of 100 people that are passionate about the community will make a far bigger impact than a group of 1,000 that just come in here and hear me talk and walk out the doors. In this passage, we'll see that Jesus was, was surrounded by thousands of people, but he constantly pushed them away so that he could focus on these 12 because he knew that this 12 was going to make the difference in the world. So skip down to verse 16. By this point, nine verses after we left of reading, the disciples have returned to tell Jesus about all the things that happened as they went to these towns and villages. He says, let's come out to the desert so we can talk about all this incredible stuff that happened without anybody being around us. Thousands of people heard where Jesus was at, Jesus doing these incredible things. So they come out to the desert to see him and to hear him. And he says, we got to send these people away. This is the desert place, but we need to give them something to eat first. And the disciples are like, we don't have enough food for us. How are we going to feed all of these people? Jesus says, have them sit down and bring the couple of loaves of bread and the couple of fishes that we have. Verse 16 says, then he took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and break and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were all filled. And there was taken up of the fragments that remained to them 12 baskets. Jesus is incredible miracle where with just a handful of food that he could hold in his two hands. He looks at the heaven and asks God to bless it. And then he gives it to the 12 disciples and they're able to feed the thousands. What Jesus does in this moment is he shows them, listen, I am going to use you to feed the masses the truth of my word and the power of my spirit. And when you're done, you're going to end up with more than you had in the beginning because there was a basket for each one of them. They started with a handful of food and they all ended up individually, 12 of them, with a basket of more than Jesus started with. 
Look down at, at verses 18 to 20. And it came to pass that as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that you're one of the old prophets risen again. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And if you've been around here for a little while, you recognize this back and forth because it's one I refer to regularly. And typically I refer to it in the passage where Matthew is giving us his perspective of what happens in this moment. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? They said, well, some people say this, some people say this. And Jesus asked the question that every person, every person has to answer one day, who do you say that I am? And every one of us is going to answer that question one day. And Peter says, well, you're the, you're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. Now, in Matthew's telling of the story, Matthew tells us that Jesus then says, that's exactly right, and upon this bedrock of truth, I will build my church. And I tell that story often because here at our church, we were often referred to ourselves as that church. We are that church. Because we've been known as that church that does things in the community. That church that has the crazy suits in the Christmas parade. That church that has an inflatable T-Rex costume and does a dino night. We're that church. And we've gone to a place where people know about us. But more importantly than being that church, we are that church that Jesus promised to build with power and truth. On this same passage of Scripture that I often refer to is, is right here in the middle of Luke 9. But we're not even where I want to get yet. So look down at verse 27 with me. Jesus is telling them about the things that he's going to do. And he says in verse 27, But I tell you of a truth, there are some be standing here which shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And the very next verse, 28, says, And it came to pass about eight days later, eight days later after these sayings, he took Peter, James, and John, and went up into a mountain to pray. It is not normal for Luke to give us time frames. He will often say some days later or some time later, but here he says eight days later because he's connecting this to what Jesus said. There's some people standing here that they're not going to die before they see the kingdom of God. And eight days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up into a mountain, and they see this incredible event. They go up to pray, and verse 29 says, And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening, and behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, or Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him, this is like vintage Peter. This is, this is what Peter does, all right? Peter and those that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. That's a good summation of what Peter often did. He didn't know what he was saying. You ever been there? You ever said something you didn't know what you were saying? Verse 34, and while he thus spake, he gets interrupted, there came a cloud and overshadowed them and they feared as they entered into the cloud, as it enveloped them. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close. 
and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. There's this spectacular event. And in the moments leading up to it, Jesus has asked the disciples to go and pray with him, and they are asleep. And this is Jesus' inner circle. These are these three closest disciples. They're up in the mountain praying, and they can't hang with Jesus. They can't keep their eyes open, and they drift off to sleep. But then something incredible happens, and it wakes them up. And in this minute, they get it. And the same thing that Peter had said earlier about who do you say I am, and Peter said, you're the Son of God, you're the Christ of God, you're the Messiah. Peter not only sees it, he knows it, he didn't experience it, it became real. Just like I knew about electricity, but when I felt it course through my body, I knew what it was. Peter knows it in this moment. When he sees Jesus lit up, transfigured, his raiment turning white, it became real. Something happens with frequency around here. Somebody will come to maybe hear uh, one of our worship services or they'll hear us preach in the jail or maybe they're in a Bible study and God gets a hold of them and suddenly the things that they had thought about or knew to be true or considered themselves to be, suddenly in that moment, it gets real to them. They become a believer and they thought they were one, but now they're a believer because it is real and they understand it and they know that God has made all this difference in their life. And they go and they tell their family, I'm going to get baptized at my church. And their family says this, what do you mean you're going to get baptized? You get baptized when you're a kid. What, what do you mean you get baptized? You, you, we baptized you when you were a baby. They say, well, I've become a Christian. They say, what do you mean you became a Christian? You've always been a Christian. They say, well, I, I don't know, but something is different about me now. And people who have considered themselves to be a Christian their whole life, people that their family said, we're believers or we're Christians their whole life, suddenly they wake up to the fact, they have this moment like Peter, James, and John have, where they wake up to the fact like, man, this is real. And I've just been playing around before now, and I've known the right things to say, but I'm feeling it at this moment, and I can tell you that this is the real deal, and Jesus is the Son of God, because I can see the light in this moment. And he wakes up. You see, when we see who Jesus really is, we wake up. And some of you right now, you're sleeping. And I'm not just talking about people who are dozing off in my sermon. I'm saying, you are just sleeping through life. You're just sleepwalking through life. And if I were to ask you if you're a Christian, you'd say, yeah, I've always been a Christian. I've always gone to church. But there's never been that moment in your life where you have seen who Jesus really is and the difference he makes in you, and you wake up. And you've just been sleepwalking through life. Just doing the same old, same old. There's never been a moment where everything changed. Never woke up. I heard a story about a family who's was vacationing in Hawaii, and they happened to be vacationing in Hawaii a few months ago when that false alarm went off. There were all those people who got messages on their phone. Kind of like you got a message this week from the president, you know, test. This was, it, it was, everybody in Hawaii got a notification on their phone saying, incoming ballistic missile. And there, minutes, it went a long time before people realized what was really happening. There's one guy, he's there vacationing with his family. He's on the beach. His kids are playing in the sand and his wife has gone back to the hotel to go for a run. So he gathers up the kids, and they run inside, and he's thinking, we, we just have moments to live. And so he tells his kids, I love you. 
And he makes sure that every one of them know Jesus. And his wife's phone is over on the nightstand. She never got the message. And that whole time that he's there hugging his children, thinking these are the last moments, his wife is downstairs in the hotel gym running on a treadmill. Why? Because she never got the message. And she's just doing what she's been doing. In that moment where he thought the world was about to end, what really mattered became very clear to him. But for her, because she hadn't got that message, she didn't have that sudden clarity. It seemed totally normal to keep running in place on a treadmill. And hear me, all right? That's where some of you live right now. You haven't gotten the word that this is real. And there's coming an end one day. And I don't know when, I don't know how much longer we got, but it's going to end one day. And you're just running in place. And you need to wake up. Peter wakes up, and he, he just can't believe what he's seeing. Even though he has known the truth, it becomes real to him in this moment. The disciples wake up, and they never will be the same. And when we plug into the Almighty, we get clarity about what really matters. Can I be honest with you? Some of you are facing some really tough stuff, and you're anxious about it, and you're scared about it, and I get it. And then some of you are anxious and scared about stuff that isn't a big deal. It's not. And a week from now or a year from now, you're going to realize, like, this is not a big deal. That wasn't a big deal. When we see Jesus for who he really is, we get clarity about what really matters. Some of you struggling right now, if you want to follow Jesus and let go of this thing that you're holding on to, I promise you, if you saw who Jesus really is, if you took him at face value, if you could see him like Peter saw him in this moment, you would not have a second thought about leaving that pill or that booze or that person, whoever it might be, behind and saying, I've got to follow Jesus. I don't know what you're going to do, but I've got to follow him. So Peter is moved in this moment. And then, because they're awake now, and Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking about Jesus' upcoming death in Jerusalem, and it starts to wrap up, and they're starting to leave, and Peter doesn't want it to end. That's how a good worship service is. You don't want it to end. He doesn't want it to end. And he says, hey, um, hey let's, let's, I got an idea. Let's build three tents, and there can be one for Jesus, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, and we can just keep having church here. No, nobody has to go anywhere. We'll, we'll construct a place where you can live right here. I never want to leave this moment, is what Peter is saying. And while Peter's heart was in the right place, his theology was wrong. And for that reason, a cloud enters, and they are afraid because they knew that they had heard in synagogue school that when Solomon dedicated the temple years ago for their ancestors, that God showed up and filled the whole temple with smoke, and it was God's presence there. And so when this cloud envelops them, they know like, man, God is present right now. And they hear a voice that says, this is my son. Hear him. And when the cloud goes away, it is just Jesus standing there. And what God was saying to Peter is, don't you worry about Moses, and don't you worry about Elijah. You follow Jesus. That's who you need to worship. The Christ. Worship Him. In Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the power of transformation. Only in Him. And this is not only true for our personal lives, but it's true corporately for our church. 
The blueprints for the church we're building, that our friends and neighbors will join, that our children will one day lead. The blueprints of that church is in God's Word, and what God's Word shows us is the power to change lives and the power to build life-changing churches is in Jesus alone. It's only in Him. And without the power of God, this is just machinery. This is just a car on the side of the road dead. This is a, a, a tractor rusting out in the fields, hasn't been driven in years. That's all this is if it's not plugged into the power of Christ. Just rusting machinery. Just a group of people, no power. I read this guy, he took his family to see the Hoover Dam. They toured the Hoover Dam, and after they had toured the whole humongous, monstrous structure of the Hoover Dam, they wanted to stop in the gift shop and buy some T-shirts and some keychains. But the gift shop was closed because the power was out. And what's hilarious about that is that the Hoover Dam is one of the biggest electric, electricity-generating constructions on the face of the earth. And here, the gift shop, sitting in the middle, on the top of the Hoover Dam, on the top of this immense source of power, has none. Why? Because somewhere between that generation of power and the light switch where you flip it on in that gift shop, there had something had become disconnected. And if we are just here and there's no power, and we're, we're building our church and our lives upon the bedrock truth that Jesus is the Christ, and there is no power, something's disconnected. God help us if we are the gift shop for the power that is Jesus Christ and we've got no power. And we see this play out in the next section of, of passages. You're still with me in Luke 9. Let's keep reading together. Verse 37. And it came to pass on the next day when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is my only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, and he foameth again, and brushes him hardly, and departeth from him. Bruising him hardly, departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast them out, and they could not. Jesus is up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and while he's up there, this man brings his son, who is sick and possessed by a demon, to the disciples, and they can't help him. And so when Jesus comes down the mountain, this guy's like, Jesus, your disciples, they, they don't have the power. I need you to help me. And Jesus answering and said, O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring me your son. And as he was yet coming, the devil threw him down and tear him, and Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. So Jesus heals the the child, cast the demon out of him, and everyone is amazed. Because suddenly this, this child that no one could help and no one could save, Jesus shows up and it makes all the difference. Why? The power was back on. The power was back. When we have Christ in our presence and in our midst, the power is on. And this church, this organism, this organization, it cannot run on our power. It must run on Christ. 
I heard Tim Keller use this illustration, and it's so good I got to borrow it. How many of you, you love the movie Back to the Future? All right? It's a classic movie. If you haven't seen it, here's what you need to understand. Michael J. Fox goes back in time. And when he goes back in time, he uses up the energy source that powers this time machine. He's back in time. He can't get back to the future where he lives, where he's from, because he doesn't have power. So he goes and he finds a scientist who's one day going to create this thing. He says, what do I do? He says, we got to get plugged into some serious power. We don't have any kind of that, that kind of power in this day and age. Well, Michael J. Fox happened to know exactly the moment that lightning was going to strike the clock tower in the center of town. And so they set it up so that this time machine is passing just at the right moment. So when that lightning strikes the clock tower, the power transforms to the time machine and he's able to go back to the future. Without the power, it was just a hunk of metal. But when the power came, when the lightning struck, it made all the difference. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is showing them, without the power, you are nothing. What was it that Jesus said to, to Peter? He says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What are the gates? They're the defenses. He's saying the church is going to be so powerful, Peter, that it's going to knock down the gates of hell. There's not going to be anything that can stop it. Let me ask you a question. Is that what we experience? We're, we're, we're playing defense. Worried about what the culture is going to do. Worried about what people are going to say. The church that Jesus spoke of was built upon the power of God. We are that that church. We are a godly force for good in this world. And it's not because we have hearts that are pure and noble and self-sacrificing. It's because of Jesus. It's because He makes all the difference in us. And, and, and get a hold of this. I know I'm taking you through a lot of verses of Scripture in this. Don't miss this. Jesus heals this boy and everyone is amazed Look at verse 43. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. So what's happened? Jesus just healed this child, and everybody's like, whoa! And in that moment, but while they wondered, everyone at all the things which Jesus said, he said unto his disciples, let these sayings sink down in your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. Picture this. Jesus heals this child. The crowd goes wild like someone's just hit the game-winning shot in a tournament game. Everybody's like, wow, this is incredible. He just healed this. And Jesus turns his back on everybody that's celebrating. He says, listen to me, guys, listen. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. You rewind. Jesus is on the mountain. He's being transfigured. He's talking with Moses and Elijah. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the fact that he's going to, de he's going to be deceased. He's going to die in Jerusalem. In this moment of celebration, and this moment of Jesus' incredible power and the Mount of Transfiguration and the casting out of the demon of this child, Jesus is constantly saying, listen, that's nothing. I'm going to die on a cross. And we get super excited about, man, Jesus has the power to heal people, and Jesus can do all these incredible things. You know what Jesus was constantly focusing on? The cross. The cross. The cross. 
And all the people and all the disciples are excited by all this lightning and fire and smoke. And Jesus is saying, the cross, the cross, the cross. Where, where's our power? It is not in the smoke, and it's not in the lightning, and it's not in the gifts, and it's not in the healing. It's in the cross. It's in the cross. Because it is in the cross that Jesus took the power of heaven and reached across the gap of our sin and our broken humanity, and He connected the power of heaven with our sin-clogged hearts and brought us back to life. You know what happened on the cross? Jesus used a spiritual defibrillator. He said, clear. And He jolted us back to life. He took the lightning power of heaven and connected it with our broken and sin-filled hearts. That's the power. And the only way for us to be connected to that power is through the cross. That's the power of the church. Through Christ, on the cross, connecting us back to the Father. You see, you know, we don't deserve to be on the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't deserve to be up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. We don't deserve to get to see that. We haven't earned that. We don't deserve that. But in Christ and in Him alone, we can be connected to the power of heaven. If you would bow your heads for a word of prayer right there at your seat. And I just want you to take a moment right now and to be honest with your own heart. Has there been a moment in your life, has there been a moment in your life where you woke up and you realized who Jesus is? I'm not asking you if you consider yourself a Christian. I'm not asking you if you go to church. I'm not asking you if you know some stuff about the Bible. I'm asking you, has there been a moment where you realize Jesus is God's Son? And on the cross, He made it possible for me to have the power of God in my life. Because if that hasn't happened, it's got to happen.